1: We start today with BC's new COVID travel restrictions. Those kicked in last week. The province has been carved up into three separate travel zones. You are not allowed to travel outside of your own zone for non-essential travel, or you risk a $575 fine. Meanwhile, still waiting to see if those police roadblocks will be set up, where they will be located, how they will work. Let's check in with the guy in charge here now. Mike Farnworth is the Minister of Public Safety. B.C. Solicitor General, I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Minister, thanks a lot for coming on.
2: My pleasure, and good morning.
1: Okay, good morning to you. When will these police roadblocks and checkpoints be set up?
2: Okay. So right now, uh, we have put in place the travel restriction order, uh, which went in effect last Friday. At that time, I'd indicated that the enforcement part of that would become later uh, this week. We're currently working with police in terms of uh, developing how exactly it will work, what kind of resources that they will need because they're the ones who would put it into operation. But the reality is this, is that they will be located at um, the, the really the key intersection between the lower mainland and going into the interior, which means in the general hope Chilliwack area, where the number one turns into either the Canyon route, the Kokahala, or the Hope Princeton. Uh, we already have, you know, the uh, the 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 ability with ferries, having worked with ferries to deal with the ferry terminals. But that's where you're going to see a periodic uh, counterattack uh, uh, type of 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 road of road check.
1: Right, and when you say it's going to be like a counterattack type road roadblock, do you mean like every vehicle? would be pulled over it wouldn't be like the police are sort of picking and choosing who to stop like everybody will be stopped
2: it absolutely it's not a question of randomly pulling you know uh cars over that's not uh the intention at all and that's why we're taking the time to make sure that the order that comes that, that comes out and that authorizes it under the emergency program act is done right that's why we're working with uh very closely uh with police to make sure that everybody understands what will happen and how it will work
1: Okay, the minister just has a short time here with us before he has to get into a meeting, but he's agreed to take some phone calls before he's gotta go. So I'm going, minister, I'm gonna read the phone lines out right now. So if you have a question for Mike Farnworth about these travel restrictions or these police checkpoints, phone right now okay 604-280-9898 is the number 604-280-9898 star 9898 on your cell will police officers have any any uh, discretion on whether they allow people to go through the blockade or to continue their travel like what if they've got a legitimate uh, sounding excuse will the police officer have the authority to say okay go ahead go on your way well
2: well, yeah, no, because right now um, this is about non-essential travel, and what we've already published uh, and was published last Friday is a list, for example, of what is considered essential travel, and it's pretty wide, uh, pretty wide-ranging, and pretty comprehensive. So, uh, for work, obviously, uh, moving to uh, a, a, a new residence, uh, going to visit, uh, you know, a parent in a in a long-term care home, uh, attending court, um, there's a whole, uh, attending school. Uh, there 's a whole uh, medical appointments there 's a whole list of what is uh, considered essential travel what we 're really trying to do is to um, uh, discourage uh, um, um, recreational travel we 've already seen uh, this past weekend that ferry traffic was down uh, quite a bit, and that uh, uh, people and hotels uh, are are working uh, very closely with us and we 've seen a number of hotels have been explaining new rules, particularly to out-of-province guests and out-of-area out guests, that now is not the time uh, to, uh, to come to, uh, you know, either the interior uh, or to, to British Columbia, uh, because this is about, you know, getting the, uh, contro- controlling the spread uh, of the virus as we vaccinate the population. Right now, about 30% of the population is vaccinated. By the Mayday long weekend, we're expecting about 60% will have been vaccinated. Yeah. And that will have a significant impact on our healthcare system and uh, and taking the pressure off it.
1: Okay. We've already heard some pushback from police who say that this is not a good idea, including the union that represents over 6,000 RCMP officers in British Columbia. They don't like this plan. Have you received any pushback from police? Like how many police agencies have have told you that uh, they don't have the resources to do this or they don't want to do this?
2: I'm familiar with the, uh, with, uh, the, the, the letter from, uh, the National Police Federation. Uh, but as I said, we've been working very closely, uh, with E-Division. Uh, that's the RCMP in terms of how something would work. Um, I know there's been a lot of misconceptions. Uh, there was a sense that, you know, uh, uh that, uh, oh, this is going to be all over the province. It's not. It, it, the reality is it is, it is at, at the key, uh, intersection point between the lower mainland and the interior, which as I said, is really at that Hope Chilliwack area where the three highways, uh, 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 come together okay. and okay. that would be where you would take it, you, you would do it uh we've had really good cooperation from the police uh both municipally uh and at the rcmp level
1: okay let's take a few phone calls here in the time that you've got Sherilyn from maple ridge on the line hi Sherilyn. go ahead
3: um yes good morning i just had a really quick question uh i am an essential worker and my travel takes me from valmont to fort nelson if i'm stopped at one of these checkpoints How do I validate to the police that my travel is essential?
2: Um, First off, if you're traveling from Belmont to Fort Nelson, uh, you won't be seeing um, a a checkpoint. You would not be seeing anything. And your travel is is essential. And and, uh, so you don't have to uh, you wouldn't have to worry about that.
1: Okay, but what if someone does get stopped at a checkpoint and they're challenged on whether their travel is essential or not? So let's say the police officer says, are you traveling for an essential reason? The driver says, yes. Does the the cop then just wave you on your way, or do you got to prove it? Do you got to show show any cause? And those,
2: yeah. and those are the details that we are working out right now is to exactly what will happen and how things will work at um, when one of these uh, periodic um, 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 checks uh, is, is being done and that will be later in the week because uh, as I said we want to make sure that everybody is on the same page and that we are getting it right because we're sensitive to the issues uh, that people raise particularly you know a sense of, 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 uh, of, of, of racialized communities have raised concerns people wanting to know what to uh, what, do they need particular kind of, of documentation the police are sensitive to that as well they've raised that with us that's why we're working through those details at the present okay. time
1: Let's go to Jody on the open line from Abbotsford. Hi, Jody.
4: Yes, hi. My question
0: uh, is, my husband is a high school teacher in the Fraser Valley, and he runs an outdoor rec program at the school and was planning to do like a Kettle Valley bike trip with his group. Now, because it's part of school, is that considered education,
4: or would that not be considered essential?
1: Minister.
2: Right off the top, I would say if that's Part of school, uh, then that would that would strike me as being uh, as being essential. Um, the question is, is when are they planning on doing it? This order, uh, just so you know, uh, came into effect on um, on Friday. It's in place until the 25th of May, the day after uh, the day after uh, uh, the the May long weekend. And uh, so that's the the question would be, when does it fall into that into that period? But given it sounds like it's a school, um, that sounds like it would be essential.
1: Okay, it sounds like it. But, you know, this is where I meant by, well, the police have some discretion. Like, what if you got a head scratcher like this? What is the cop supposed to do? And and, 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 and,
2: and, and, and that's, as I said, that's where the they would have this, you know, I fully expect they will have discretion. It's not about just handing tickets out for the sake of tickets. common sense, uh, in my view, uh, always
1: helps to solve a lot of problems. Okay, let's go to Monica on the line in Surrey. Hi.
3: Hi, uh, my question is related to sports. So what about competitions uh, for high-performance kids? Are they allowed to travel between um, Lower Mainland and uh, Kamloops or Kelowna, that area?
1: Minister? A
2: lot a lot of those um, uh, have been uh, have been uh, have been postponed um, and a lot of them are and a lot of that travel is and has been has been restricted we've seen that in a number of cases a number of competitions uh, have been uh, have been uh, postponed until later in the year it will depend on when something's
5: being held
1: let's go to Kent on the line in Vancouver hi Kent I just want
5: to make sure it will be okay to travel to Penticton to check on an aged parent. My mother is 86 years old. She is a widow. She is by herself. Yes,
1: okay. absolutely. Okay. Okay, so that falls within what, the essential medical yep. travel? Yeah. Yep. D- Dave in South Surrey. Hi, Dave. Hey, guys. Uh, last time I heard it's still legal
5: to drive across Canada. Can I get in my motorhome? If I live on Sunshine
2: Coast, I can hop on a ferry because I can still hop on a ferry um,
5: and drive across Canada or drive to Alberta. I can still go to Banff. Alberta border is not shut down. So can I drive across Canada? Is he going to be stopped, Minister? Minister,
1: if,
2: if, if, you are, if you are relocating to Alberta, uh, that would be fine. Uh, but what we're discouraging and what the order prohibits is recreational travel Outside of our uh, our uh, uh, our health our health area, so if you're in the Lower Mainland and you're planning on going to Alberta for a holiday, the answer would be no. If you're relocating there and going there for work, then the answer would be yes.
1: Minister, just I know you got to go, but let me ask you real quick. At the bottom of the hour here, we'll, we we will be discussing the decision last night by the Vancouver School Board to cancel this police liaison program in vancouver schools no more vancouver police officers in vancouver schools under this program which has been in place for nearly fifty years you're the attorney you're the solicitor general you're the top cop in the province you have any thoughts on that on vancouver police officers being told to get out of schools in vancouver oh.
2: Yeah, I'm aware of the discussion and the debate that's been going on in Vancouver and and the school district uh, has made this decision. But what I'm encouraged by is the uh, the Vancouver uh, Police Department is going to continue to work with Uh, The school district on being able to uh, provide uh, uh, programs that do involve uh, the police. Um, I heard them this morning, and so I'm I'm encouraged that that is taking place.
1: You don't have any concerns, though, that the police wanted to continue this program. They said they were willing to change the program if there were concerns. I mean, this is a program that's been around for 50 years. We got a gang war going on. We got record drug overdose deaths. We got kids with mental health issues during the pandemic. I don't know, it just seems like me, the, to me the worst possible time to stop this program, but your, your thoughts?
2: And that's why I said I think I have yeah. uh, heard the police this morning saying they're wanting to work with the school, board, the school board, and I think that that's uh, a good approach that they're wanting to take, and I, I think the, uh, the school board uh, should be looking at what, uh, what's in the best interest of kids
1: and, uh, and, and keeping them safe. Minister, thank you for coming on this morning. Thanks. My pleasure. All right. I appreciate it. That is Mike Farnworth. He is BC Solicitor General. Thanks a lot for all your calls there. Let's we'll check in with the opposition here now. Mike Morris is a liberal public safety critic. He's a former police officer himself. Mike, thanks for coming on.
3: My pleasure, Mike.
1: I know, I know you were listening to that interview. Anything jump out at you there?
3: <laughs> uh, well i'm i'm uh, more confused than than ever you know <laughs> the first time i heard him say that uh, if i heard him correctly that those travel bans uh are, are basically for the lower mainland only and not the rest of the province so uh that's uh problematic well yeah, he said he is. said
1: the roadblocks will be set up at strategic locations to kind of try and people stop people going between the lower mainland and the rest of the province
3: right yeah that should have been made abundantly clear right at the beginning you know i find it uh also curious you know they announced this order uh on friday it came as a shock to the police uh in british columbia on this and now they're negotiating with police as to how they're going to enforce it the uh you know the order will be over by the time they come up with uh some kind of an enforcement plan so um again you know they they put the cart before the horse here i think
1: okay it was interesting that he said that police will have discretion on who they can allow to go through these these checkpoints so he said police will use common sense sometimes there will be situations where someone might have a legitimate excuse or a compelling excuse to travel and it sounds like the police will have the authority to say well okay i guess you can go through does that make sense to you
3: yeah common sense is a big factor when it comes to enforcing the law and and, uh different things but you know, I'm sure that the police will be erring on the side of caution. Uh, you know, they don't know. They can't uh, make those determinations by themselves, uh, um, you know, it would have been nice uh, if the minister had said that there will be um, provincial health resources uh, helping the, to man those police checkpoints with the police forces. Uh, I think that would add a different element to that, but uh, uh, he's never mentioned that at all. Do you,
1: think, do you think, though, in general, in principle, that the government is doing the right thing, bringing in these restrictions and bringing in checkpoints and roadblocks? Is that the right thing to do?
3: Well, you know, I think it is, but I think uh, that uh, there wasn't enough planning put into this uh, particular Mm -hmm. order itself, uh, Um, and and to rely on the police for this when I think perhaps they should be using other provincial resources for this. You know, oftentimes we see, uh, you know, different times of the year where the conservation officers, for an example, have checkpoints, uh, motor vehicle branch uh, have checkpoints out for commercial vehicles. Uh, Maybe this is something that they could have uh, a number of health authorities or a number of health professionals from around the province get together and and man these checkpoints and and, uh, use their expertise to determine whether people are traveling legitimately or not.
1: Okay, Speaking to Liberal Public Safety Minister Mike Morris, I know you're a former police officer yourself. Let me ask you real quickly about the decision last night by the Vancouver Police Board to shut down and scrap the police liaison program been in place for almost 50 years in Vancouver schools with police officers mentoring kids in schools and and there to help kids in schools. What do you think of that decision?
3: um yeah you know first off i just heard on the news this morning i was quite uh, surprised by that Uh, um, i'd like to know the rationale that they used to come up with that decision and perhaps they should be revisiting that that's uh, from my uh, experience over the years uh, that's been one of the most valuable programs that i've seen in connecting a lot of troubled youth with police and and a mentorship that is available there for them So, you know, did they consult with the Vancouver Police Department? And what was the criteria they used to make that decision? So I think it needs to be revisited.
1: Well, they said the criteria, we just got 30 seconds here, was that some racialized kids, black kids, indigenous kids, were uncomfortable with cops in the schools. That was the main reason.
3: Yeah, well, I'd like to see some uh, something to support that. And uh, what do the Vancouver Police say? And how, what's their file look, uh, look like? And what kind of successes have they experienced over the last number of years that support uh, carrying on yeah. with this program?
1: Well, they say they've had a lot of success with the program, and we're going to talk about it further here at the bottom of the hour. Mike Morris, thank you very much for coming on today.
3: You bet. My pleasure, Mike. Take All
1: right. So Liberal MLA Mike Morris there. He's the Liberal Public Safety Critic. Let's talk about last night's decision by the Vancouver School Board now to cancel the police liaison program in Vancouver schools. This is a program that placed 17 specially trained police officers in schools to provide school safety, also to mentor and help kids in crisis. These cops also volunteered in the schools running sports teams and school programs. Not anymore. The school board last night voting to cancel the program. It will be shut down at the end of June. The police officers will be redeployed by the Vancouver Police Department. The school board said the presence of police officers in schools. This program has been around for nearly 50 years, by the way. The school board said it was causing damage to the mental and physical well-being of students. Here is Vancouver School Board Trustee Jennifer Reddy.
6: It's really important to to think back to what asked the board to act in the first place. And that was a request to address the harm of police in schools, particularly because of larger systemic issues like racial profiling, The criminalization of poverty, the criminalization of behavior that doesn't suit norm, for example, or the disproportionate impact of street checks and carding um, and punishment and punitive punishment on racialized students, but especially indigenous and black students.
1: Okay, School Board Trustee Jennifer Reddy speaking last night at this meeting as the school board votes uh, decisively to shut this program down. Let's discuss now with my guest, Ali Chowdhury. He went to high school in East Vancouver. He supports the school liaison program. He started an online campaign to try and save the program from being canceled. Ali, I'm very pleased to welcome him him back to the show. Ali, thanks a lot for coming on.
4: Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me again.
1: Uh, Okay, how are you feeling this morning? You must be disappointed
4: extremely disappointed and i know i'm not the only one a majority of us are um, the school liaison as an officer program was one of the only ways to get officers involved within our community um, and build a healthy relationship with our students
1: okay this comes at a time when the police are under scrutiny right i mean we we saw yeah. we've seen acts of racism we've seen acts of discrimination involving the police and that's elevated the concerns uh, about police conduct Really, all around North America, not just here in Vancouver. So we all know, we under, we all understand that. Like, can you talk about, you know, the context of this decision with, with a lot of scrutiny on the police right now? Is that a is that a rational reason for, in your mind, to shut the program down, though?
4: Yeah, and that's one of the biggest things that I was talking to the trustees about is differentiating police officers from school liaison officers you know, those are two different things. School liaison officers come into schools to build a relationship. They're not there to try to enforce the law. And like I shared the story yesterday about the baton being taken away and the student not being written up for it. Those are some of the things that school liaison officers do, Um, you know, and the solution that the school board actually came up with actually solves no one's problems. You know, it took away a great program that we had, but it also doesn't solve that problem that, um, where these students don't have a relationship with the police, um, so it it doesn't yeah. help anyone.
1: okay, can you talk a little bit, Ali, about your own experience with the program because you know when you were going to high school, you were going down a wrong path, right? Can you tell a little tell the story about how the police liaison program helped you?
4: Yeah, definitely. And a, a big thing is to do with the hands- on approach that the school liaison officers have, counselors and all these people you know, my counseling, what they did was, was focused more on the academics, sending out how to apply for scholarships and stuff. They don't understand the life that someone like myself had to go through, um, or at least most of them don't. The school liaison officer, someone who's engaged in in the Vancouver area, um, understands my situation and other kids' situations that are involved in things like gangs a lot more and how to deal with those things more effectively. Um, So again, when you're receiving things like death threats and you don't have to jump onto a non-emergency call where they might respond back, within one to two days, you have a school liaison officer right there to communicate with to help you feel safe um, right away.
1: Okay, I think it's safe to say that students were divided on this issue. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting to look at the report that the Vancouver School Board itself commissioned. Uh, They they hired an outside consultant to study the program. And even that report showed that most students wanted to keep the program and, and even uh, students who identified as, as, as BIPOC or black indigenous people of color students in Vancouver schools, actually most of them wanted to keep the program, maybe with some changes. But certainly there was a very vocal minority who felt very strongly on, there, on the other side of it, right? Like, what do you say to your, your friends or your people that you know on this issue, black kids, indigenous students, who may have felt strongly on the other side of it, who felt intimidated or uncomfortable with police officers in the school? What do you say to them?
4: Yeah, it's hard to say just because a lot of the people that I had met in the community, including Black and Indigenous students, fully supported it. Um, It's hard because, you know, I was on a call with one of the trustees and a few of the students, and the students brought up over 20 points on why this program is such a successful program. And the trustee came back with one reason. She was saying that because the other side is not willing to talk, until the program is completely eliminated, um, they feel like they're in a position where they have to eliminate the program to continue these conversations with the kids. So it's it's tough to even have a conversation when they're not even willing to come to the table. And because of that, this program now has to be eliminated, um, which benefited so many other students. If I was to wow. talk to them, I would, yeah, oh yeah. And wow, okay, the students that, are real disappointed there.
1: That's interesting. Which, uh, which trustee are you talking about there, or do you want to disclose that?
4: Yeah, the trustee was one of the ones that brought up the motion, and I was Lois Chan-Pedley, and um, she, she reached out, and we had a chance to connect, and I brought some of the students on from the community, and the students, again, had over 20, re- 20 reasons why, and one of the reasons that she came back with um, was, you know, students don't feel safe, so the students said, okay, let's work together. If that means yeah. taking away the uniform, taking away the gun, let's do that. Um, however... Um, They didn't do that. They completely eliminated the program. And they added in some amendments that say that, you know, they still want these programs run by the VPD. But let me tell you, when you have police officers moved away from a school liaison unit into different units and stuff, unfortunately, there's just no time for them to connect with the children and run these programs.
1: Yeah, know That's the other interesting thing is a lot of people think, well, maybe they'll save money, and you could put the money that they save into mental health services or social services for kids or something. That's not the way this is going to work. This was a program no, that was no, it was fully. No this a program was no. fully funded by the VPD, and those police officers will be just re- redeployed to other duties.
4: And that's what some yeah. of the trustees were even confused about. They thought that the VPD would get that money back to the city, and then the VSB would take that take those funds from the city. And, you know, you have no. to make it real clear to the trustees that that's not how it works. The VPD is just going to allocate those funds to a different department. So the trustees, even when making this decision, weren't exactly clear on what their plan is. You okay. know, Now they've left our schools open and unclear for the next two to three years while they try to implement a program that is definitely not going to be as successful, successful as the
1: SLO program. Okay, speaking to Ali Chowdhury, he uh, supports the school liaison program. He fought uh, a campaign to save the program. It was cu- It was cancelled last night by the school board. You mentioned Vancouver School Board Trustee Lois Chan-Pedley and the, uh, the conversations you've had with her, Ali. Let me play a clip for you here. Here she is speaking last night at the school board meeting and talking directly to students like you who support the program.
0: To Cameron, Vinny, Callum, Hassan, and so many others who reached out to me, I know that dropping the program will hurt you. I know this program has been really good to you and kids like you. Please know that I'm doing this with a really heavy heart, and I still want to do everything I can to support you.
1: Okay, so speaking directly to yourself and your peers, Ali, who yeah. fought diligently to try and save this program, and she says, you know, she she sounded legitimately sorry to be voting to shut it down. What do you think of that?
4: Well, again, it's a sense of extortion, really, that me and the students felt that these trustees were put into a position. And this is a lot more political than I feel like a lot of us know going all the way up to the provincial government, um, where they were put into a position where they're trying to talk to this minority, but the minority has put them um, in a place where they have to decide on if, you know, the minority is not willing to come to the table and talk. And because of their, you know, and that's just not fair because that's not a good way to communicate. And I had to talk to many of the students on the call and be like, guys, that's not an effective way to solve a problem. And that's what we're showing our students right now, that if you decide to act like that, that's how, you know, I guess that's how you get the results that you want.
1: Okay. It's interesting that the Vancouver Police Department, they could see the writing on the wall here. I mean, they knew this was coming. And I know that the VPD was working behind the scenes to try and find a compromise with the school board. I, I spoke to a VPD superintendent on the show a couple of weeks ago about this who said that, look, if the concern is police officers in uniforms or the times when police officers are, they've got a sidearm, they've got a gun on their, on their holster, on their hip, and that makes kids uncomfortable. Like, let's talk about that. Maybe we could take the police out of uniform. Maybe we could have them unarmed in the school. I mean, there were lots of ways that they could have compromised on this program, but they just simply did not want to go there. What your thoughts?
4: Definitely. That's exactly what they did. Rather than working together with both sides of the party, they completely eliminated the whole program, um, which is going to, again, not build that relationship that you want students to have with the police, which is an important one. You know, they were a part of the community. They built relationships. They ran school activities. 61% of students felt a sense of safety um, while they yeah. were there. They built a trust. Um, And they were resourced to different community programs, like the cadets programs and stuff. And the VPD made it very clear that when this program, and if it is eliminated, you know, they they weren't sure at the time, um, that these programs aren't going to continue. And these are the cadet programs and these many other programs that help students outside of schools and things that this new program that VSB brings in isn't going to be able to offer.
1: Yeah, no, it's interesting the stats you mentioned because that's right out of the VS the Vancouver School Board's own report. They hired this independent consultant to, to do an independent study of the program, and that report yeah. found that like 74% of students wanted to keep the program. You oh, know, yeah. and no, definitely and,
4: there was tons.
1: Yeah, and, and including like 65% of the respondents themselves identi- identified themselves as members of the BIPOC community. So we're talking Black Indigenous people of color students in our schools that wanted to keep the program, but you know, it didn't and really work out. Of the that,
4: people, no. Mike, that voted against, you know, that were opposed to having school liaison officers, they simply still thought that the school liaison officers were good people. They just didn't like the uniform and the gun. You know, I mean, oh, yeah. we had Owen on the call saying that he he thought they were good people as well. Um, but again, because of the uniform and the gun, they didn't feel safe in the ZPD. And I think a lot of us, other people that support the program recognized that and said, let's do it. Let's work together and figure something out. But the trustees, I think, had a whole whole different plan in mind, and I think they had it um, decided even before the vote.
1: Okay. Well, Ali, you certainly uh, did your part to try and save this program. I thought you put up a really good campaign to try and save it. Thank you very much for coming on the show today to talk about it.
4: Yeah. Thank you for having me, Mike.
1: Okay. Ali Chowdhury There, he went to high school in East Vancouver. He started an online campaign to save the school liaison program. Turned out to be unsuccessful. The school board voting last night to shut.
0: the
1: program down all right welcome back to the show let's talk about metro vancouver's seething gang war here now what a week last week we had three separate hits here in the lower mainland a lot of these shootings taking place in broad daylight near popular family locations like a skate park and uh, a fitness center. Unbelievable. Some of the gunplay that's going on and the violence seems to be a lot of retribution, tit for tat killings going on. Have a listen to this montage here from Global News on the mayhem that we saw last week.
5: The investigation is ongoing. It's a very serious investigation. We continue to believe that uh, this is a targeted killing and that Mr. Dollywell was the intended victim.
0: 20-year-old Bailey McKinney was shot dead near the basketball courts at Town Center Park at around 6.30. Homicide investigators say their initial findings indicate the killing was targeted.
7: A one-time MMA fighter known for his powerful punch has been knocked out in B.C.'s gang war. Police identifying 46-year-old Todd Gallenberg as the man assassinated outside Langley Sportsplex.
1: Okay, police investigating a shooting yesterday, shots fired in Coquitlam yesterday, also a stabbing Uh, police investigating whether that mayhem in Coquitlam yesterday is related and linked to the ongoing gang violence that we're seeing in the Lower Mainland. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Stephen Metelsky. He is a lecturer in criminal psychology at Mohawk College. I recommend his book, Undercover Stories from the Underworld of Law Enforcement, and his website, underworldstories.com. And I'm pleased to welcome him to the show. Stephen, thanks a lot for coming on.
5: Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Really appreciate it.
1: You bet. Thanks a lot for being here. Stephen, you follow this stuff all across Canada. You, t- you specialize in the the underworld and organized crime in our country. Where does Vancouver fit into this, into this puzzle when you take a look at the criminal landscape across the whole country? Is Vancouver uh, pretty bad right now?
5: Vancouver has been historically and geographically linked to the gang and drug trade you know with territory comes power and with the power is control and money and any major investigation whether it be from ontario or british columbia has had huge connections and connectivity to the mexican cartels and the drug trade uh you know the top two rackets are drug trafficking and gambling we've seen the the vast majority of the violence in ontario is due to the amount of money gambling makes but in british columbia uh, especially in the downtown area it is directly linked to you know these turf wars that really have the common denominator of drugs
1: what about the uh what we're seeing here right now in the lower mainland is this uh, like a gang you know we often hear i always remember that line in the godfather where these they say it's just business and a lot of the the soldiers are killing each other and it's just business but i don't know a lot of it seems personal too some of these hits seem to be retribution for earlier hits
5: I think you have a multi-layered facet of, of sequence of events happening here, Mike. Definitely, the tit for tat is happening. You know, sadly and tragically, when you look at the incident with Bailey McKinney, um, you know, when it, the problem is when you're immersed in this in this underworld in this gang life, you know, um, it's lifespan of a lot of these gangsters is very short-lived. And Bailey, you know, having these these upcoming charges in court regarding drug trafficking. Uh, kidnapping, unlawful confinement. The problem is, you know, a lot of these gangsters live up to this old motto that three can keep a secret if two are dead. A lot of these hits are mm-hmm. rooted in this uh, paranoia because that world is immersed and filled with paranoia. Are, is is somebody going to cooperate with the police? Are they going to rat other people out? You know, that could lead to other uh, prosecutions and criminal charges. So it's it's definitely a turf war if you look at the history of You know, this whole Wolfpack alliance that was actually, you know, started by a member of the Hells Angels, British Columbia, in terms of their evolution and amalgamation of forming these groups is something very unique to that province. Um, You know, members have moved uh, further east into Ontario, but BC is definitely sort of ahead of the game with, you know, the evolution of, of putting together these street gangs.
1: Okay, how do these gangs in British Columbia intersect with other criminal organizations in in the rest of the country? Do you see a lot of connectivity between uh, criminal activity on the West Coast compared to what you're seeing there in Ontario, for example?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you a prime example is Sucfir Dio. He was a member of the Independent Soldiers out in British Columbia, and in 2013, he moved into an $8 million mansion in Oakville, Ontario, just outside of Toronto. And he was actually charged by an RCMP, a municipal joint operation with cocaine trafficking. And that operation in Oakville and Toronto had direct connections to uh, Joaquin Guzman's Sinaloa cartel. And, uh-huh. you know, his uh, he was snuffed out. In 2016, uh, two men dressed as construction workers... Uh, They basically stormed his car on Yonge Street and shot him to death in his Range Rover, and it was definitely a targeted hit because there were a couple stick-on GPS uh, pucks underneath his car. But another, this is just right out of a Martin Scorsese movie, is Dean Wuchar was a hitman based in BC who's now thankfully incarcerated because he was actually, uh, came out to Ontario to commit a hit for Italian-related mafia back in 2012. And they actually intercepted uh, some of his encrypted communications with gangsters in Ontario, where he actually called himself a contract killer with a $100,000 fee. When he was arrested, Mike, investigators in British Columbia did a warrant at his house. And, and you can't make this up. In Surrey, BC, in his home, in his bedroom closet, he had a variety of different hitman outfits with a weapon and silencer to match each outfit and this guy was the real deal so you know this just isn't in bc these this violence with these groups if there's money to be made i've always said you have these different cultural groups and gangs working together you know something like the Wolfpack. they all speak one universal language and that's cash
1: speaking to steven metelsky his book is undercover stories from the underworld of law enforcement underworld stories Dot .com you mentioned earlier Stephen the link to some of the mexican drug cartels how how is that affecting uh, the violence that we're seeing in british columbia and the rest of canada right now the mayhem in mexico the drug wars that we see uh, in these other countries
5: well there's currently a power vacuum with you know el chapo being incarcerated 2 years ago the the violence is increased in mexico any major Uh, criminal investigation in Canada. There are two major routes for drugs into Canada. It is up the West Coast into Vancouver, and there are a lot of uh, connectivity with different criminal groups in the trucking industry. The drugs then come across that way to Ontario, or they come right up through the Midwestern United States, right through Chicago. Um, But when you look at organized crime out on the East Coast, you know, you have... The Montreal Mafia for years have, have corrupted and owned, you know, the airports and the, the waterfront. So, uh, I mean, we saw El Chapo in, in 2016, up until that time, he was flying and dropping off remote-controlled GPS parachutes carrying cocaine that was being dropped to the forests of British Columbia. So, wow. the, the Mexican cartel are the common denominator in any major drug investigation in Canada, typically.
1: How much success do the police have in cracking these type of gangland murders and targeted hits? Like, quite often it's become a very familiar refrain here in British Columbia when we see one of these deadly shootings, like we've seen so many here in the last week and a half or so. Uh, The police always seem to say, well, the the person who was killed was known to the police. The police seem to know who these gangbangers are, and yet when one of them is taken out, it seems very difficult to lay charges, although we did see a charge uh, this week. Uh, In a lot of these cases, a lot of these cases go unsolved.
5: Yeah, I've always said, you know, whether it be a gangland or any type of underworld hit, you don't have a long lineup of witnesses at the local police station to cooperate. Um, You know, investigators typically are going to rely on anonymous tips through something like Crime Stoppers. Uh, And I always say there's, you know, three ways out for these young gangsters, you know, because it is a short lifespan. It's jail, death are putting on a government jersey and cooperating with the government and that's probably really the best avenue uh, to further an investigation is to get somebody to cooperate and to flip whether they're in a status of an informant or an elevated role as a police agent and it's very difficult uh to you know to solve these crimes unless there's great video evidence or dna or forensics or Sometimes, you know, very rarely, there could be really good witness evidence as well. But it's yeah. much more difficult, Mike.
1: Stephen, how attractive is the gang lifestyle, would you say, to, to young people in, in Canada these days? or certainly here in Metro Vancouver. We're seeing a lot of gunplay and mayhem and turf wars going on here. Uh, and we often hear about young people being attracted to the lifestyle. There's recruiting going on to get more people into the, into the gang life. How attractive is that right now to young people? And do you think authorities and police and the school system is doing a, a good job, generally, of trying to dissuade young people from getting involved in this stuff?
5: I think when you see the history of movies and the media infiltration and how they purport, um, you know, gang life, is, is, is made to look far too glamorous and glorious um, you know, I dealt with a lot of these uh, sort of gangsters on different levels of informant and agent throughout my previous career. And it is a life fraught with violence and paranoia. And I mentioned this before. There, there's only three options out. And unfortunately and tragically, most times, they're, you know, it's death because it's, it's a live by the gun, die by the gun. Right. You know, the money might be fast. The cars might be fast. You know, but look at super deal. He was living in an $8 million mansion, all these fancy sport cars, two young kids. And he was, you know, his bullet ridden body was sitting in his Range Rover. And that was the end of his life. And this is tragically the route a lot of these criminals are going. And I think they once they get in it, there's no doubt in my mind uh, they're in over their head, a lot of them. And they realize there's no way out now that I'm so immersed in this. So you know, can we do as a society on various levels of institutions uh, educate our youth better? Yeah, we have to.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you're you're speaking to uh, a, a province now where we're just dealing with a, a decision by the Vancouver School Board last night to cancel the police and schools program in Vancouver schools yesterday, and we've been talking about that on the show today too, which I think is a, a wrong-headed decision at, at this time, especially when there's so much. There's so much mayhem going on in the streets. We'll take a quick break here, but let me ask you real quickly, Stephen. Before we before we do that, do you think like do these type of hits and these this type of spasm of gun violence and and deadly gunplay does it's kind of beget more? Do like does a gangland hit sort of beget more hits? Because quite often it seems like one person gets taken out and then it's retribution time, and it just one hit just seems to lead to another. So I'm just wondering if we've seen. 3 we saw another attempted shooting and a stabbing yesterday in Coquitlam uh, could we just be seeing the beginning of this do you expect more do you expect more attacks
5: yeah you know with with the history of organized crime violence there really is a domino effect we saw this exact same thing happening in southern ontario over the last 3 years with the italian based mafia in hamilton and north toronto um, where it was literally a, a tit for tat you know there was a hit and then Uh, Weeks And a few months later, there was a retaliatory incident. And and that's the unfortunate part is, you know, organized criminal groups, more the old-style, old-fashioned gangsters, they don't want this heat. They don't want the violence. And, you know, if you look at something like Vito Rizzuto in Montreal, the mobster who kind of reigned over Canada for decades in the Italian mafia, you know, his plan was to bring in the Hells Angels, to bring in the Irish mafia, the Haitian gangs, And work all together harmoniously because they, you know, the the, the bigger your network is, the less violence there is, the less heat and the more money there is to be made. And at the same time, they do this because it trips up law enforcement because you have that much more of a vast international network of, of organized criminal groups working together.
1: Just a few minutes left here with my guest, Stephen Metelsky. Stephen is a former police officer, now a college professor in criminology and organized crime. His book is Undercover, Stories from the Underworld of Law Enforcement. Stephen, just a few minutes left here, but I, I can't imagine anything, I don't know, kind of scarier job to do for a cop than to be undercover trying to infiltrate Organized crime. When, when when you talk to police officers who do that kind of job, what kind of life is that? I mean, that's got to be terrifying.
5: It's uh, just an adrenaline inducing, stress uh, stressful career. And you know, in my book, just to give you an example, there's operatives I spoke to firsthand from Canada and the United States. Jay Dobbins infiltrated the Hell's Angels for two years in the state of Arizona, and you know his his old persona of himself was was literally a faint memory, because he had to play this role for two years and faced death, you know, almost on a weekly basis. So it's a very stressful, um, but productive, potentially productive investigative technique.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. If you can infiltrate a gang or like a biker gang or any kind of organized criminal activity, I mean, man, you talk about evidence that can put people away. But Man, that's got to be so risky. But you mentioned like the adrenaline. Like what kind of person goes into work like that to be an undercover cop? I mean, you got to be a special type of police officer, I imagine.
5: You do, because I say in the introduction of my book, Mike, that the men and women who sign up to do this work, they don't do it for the extra pay because there isn't any. They do it because they sincerely want to put really bad, dangerous criminals behind bars. And a lot of the operatives I spoke to, like they were face-to-face working undercover, with killers. Dominic Polyphone in the state of New Jersey worked undercover face-to-face with Richard the Iceman Kuklinski, a hitman for the New York mob, and literally a psychopathic serial killer who also killed for the mere pleasure of it. So, I mean, death is like imminent at any second for these operatives. So, I just wanted to put... You know readers in the driver's seat because even most police officers on on different agencies aren't even aware of these operations that were ongoing or have occurred
1: steven it's been great to have you on the show today thank you coming for coming on
5: Uh, oh it's a pleasure mike thanks for having me
1: okay you bet steven metelsky there he is a college professor in organized crime and criminal psychology his book is Undercover, Stories from the Underworld of Law Enforcement, Underworld Stories of Dot com. What do you think about what he had to say there? Give me a call on the buzzline. leave me a voicemail about the Metro Vancouver gang war and also the decision yesterday by the Vancouver School Board to shut down the police and schools program. Think? Talk about bad timing. Let's talk now about the expanding sex scandal at the top of Canada's military, a series of shocking revelations that have rocked the armed forces since February It's all regarding the sexual alleged sexual misconduct by the former chief of the defense staff, Jonathan Vance, who was once the top soldier in the country. The now retired general has been under investigation by military police after Global News first aired the allegations that he had an inappropriate relationship with a subordinate who was later identified as Major Kelly Brennan. That this went on for years, that he had also sent an email inviting another woman he outranked to go to a clothing optional resort with him. This week, the bombshells continuing when Brennan alleged in front of a parliamentary committee that Jonathan Vance had actually fathered two of her children during their 20 year relationship, that he had boasted he was untouchable and that he owned the military police investigating him the investigations continuing here now and the questions piling up against the justin trudeau government what did they know about this when did they know it what did they do about it i'm going to play some clips here for you from an extraordinary interview on sunday on the west block on global with host mercedes stevenson one of the best reporters in the country And she questioned Finance Minister Christia Freeland about this scandal. Now, have a listen to this. Here is Freeland here. And she was asked, what is your message to the women who have come forward in this scandal? Have a listen.
6: What you have done is incredibly brave and courageous. Um, It's so hard to do. Uh, I think pretty much every woman uh, knows that You know, if you have been in any of these kinds of situations, there's a fear of coming forward and to have done that, Uh, is a really really brave thing
1: all right finance minister there christia freeland also the deputy prime minister in conversation with global news reporter mercedes stevenson about the jonathan vance scandal which continues to deepen let's discuss now with my guest james bazan conservative mp he is the vice chair on the standing committee on national defense in ottawa and i'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show mr bazan thanks a lot for coming on
7: thanks for having me back on the show mike
1: okay when we take a look at the latest here i mean this just seems to be getting deeper and more concerning as the days go by like what is top of mind for you right now in this story in this scandal and in this investigation going on right now what is it that you want to know what is the what are the key questions here at the moment
7: there is no question that the trudeau government dropped the ball here three years ago they were told about this uh, allegation. They knew that it was sexual misconduct, and they did nothing. Uh, You know, we now learn that the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, was the very first person in the Prime Minister's office who was contacted uh, the very uh, same day or within 12 hours of um, the ombudsman trying to give the evidence to Minister Harjit Sajan. And, and Minister uh, Sajan never uh, looked at the evidence, refused to take the evidence. And uh, so, so we have this situation where the Prime Minister is now saying he didn't know, which we yeah. all know is unbelievable. Uh, Canadians do not believe the Prime Minister didn't know. When his chief of staff uh, was riding herd on these allegations and making sure that uh, they were going to be getting looked at. And what instead of looking into them, it turned into a cover-up.
1: Okay, well, Christia Freeland, the finance minister and the deputy prime minister, was asked about what the prime minister knew uh, on this scandal uh, by Mercedes Stevenson. Should the prime minister have at least been told of these allegations? Let's have a listen to that. Here's the finance minister, Christia Freeland.
6: In terms of the handling of the issue, these are very difficult issues to handle, especially when there are questions of confidentiality and the due process uh, that everyone deserves. And while I had no knowledge of this, I have a lot of confidence in the people who handled this difficult situation.
1: Okay, Krista Freeland there saying that she didn't know about it, uh, but the, the government seems to be falling back, uh, continually, James Bazan, on a kind of a technical argument about due process and who should have been in th- the investigators and who should have been told what. But what are your thoughts on the way, what are your thoughts on the way this has been handled?
7: Well, I'll I'll say I appreciate that Minister Freeland uh, showed contrition because we haven't seen that contrition from the minister that's responsible for the Department of National Defence. We haven't seen that contrition from the Prime Minister. Justin Trudeau keeps wiping his hands of it and saying that he he, he, didn't know anything. Um, But again, uh, you know, we know the Privy Council Clerk at the time, uh, Michael Warnock, and who we've had before committee you know, uh, was apologetic that he lost sight of this, that they should have stayed on top of it and they should have got down to the bottom of it. And we now know because of the reporting uh, from, from Global News is that the person that brought forward the allegations of the inappropriate email um, wanted to make sure that um, the minister was aware so that he could deal with it appropriately. The chief of defence staff only reports the two people. Minister of National Defense and the Prime Minister. There's only two people that could have had them step aside to allow a proper investigation, and that was Harge's agent and Justin Trudeau. Neither one of them took responsibility and brought about the appropriate actions to start the investigation.
2: Right. And
7: we've heard from military justice experts and those that are currently serving, including the, the commander of the Chief uh, Canadian Forces National Investigative Service, is that they should have been directed. To investigate, and instead, Justin Trudeau and Harjit Sajjan sat on their hands.
1: Okay, speaking to Conservative MP James Bazan, he is the vice chair in the National Defence Committee in Ottawa, talking about the growing scandal here in the top ranks of the Canadian military, especially revolving against former General and Chief of the Defence Staff Jonathan Vance. Uh, you mentioned the the Minister of National Defence Harjit Sajjan and Chrystia Freeland, the Deputy Prime Minister was asked about that uh, by Mercedes Stevenson on the weekend. And here is the finance minister and the deputy prime minister responding when she was asked, does she have confidence in the defense minister? Here's what she said.
6: I've worked closely with Minister Sajjan, and I can tell you he is deeply, deeply committed to serving Canada. He is deeply committed to diversity and fairness for everyone. He is very supportive Of women and yeah i i have a great deal of confidence in him
1: okay what do you think in terms of the defense minister what questions do you think he needs to answer here
7: well we've had him in front of committee three times and uh i ask him almost uh you know on a weekly basis uh on this this issue uh during question period and he is refusing to accept any responsibility. He doesn't believe in ministerial accountability, or he would have uh, taken more appropriate actions. And he would have also put uh, himself up in front of the the the, the 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 tip of the spear, essentially, on doing this investigation, uh, which he you know completely refused to do. Uh, in fact, pushing away the evidence and saying no. Um, so. Uh, there is a lot of concern over, you know, how he handled it, his relationship with uh, Jonathan Vance and how that may have influenced the cover-up. And, you know, we know that there, there has to be actions taken. You know, we've been dealing with this for three months. The government's known about it for three years. And yet we still don't have a system in place that protects the women and men yeah. in uniform. And that uh, is something that we're all working towards, and yet uh, the, the government has been mute. Uh,
1: yeah, I, th- I, I think you could just put your finger on something that I, I think is really important, because there's this very kind of intricate developing scandal about who knew what when on this in the political realm. But perhaps the bigger issue is women in the Canadian military and what they've been subjected to and what what kind of reforms are are required and i'll play this here for you this is christia freeland once again the finance minister in conversation with global news reporter mercedes stevenson and the finance minister is asked here will the government apologize to the women involved and here's what she had to say
6: i actually think that no woman should be sexually harassed in her workplace No woman serving Canada should be sexually harassed while doing that. And I'm happy right now today to apologize to any woman who was sexually harassed while serving her country.
1: Okay, Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland there apologizing to women who have been harassed in the Canadian military. James Bazan, what do you think of that? And I guess an apology is is good in, in this situation, but... Do you think more is required? Like, there should there be any kind of like independent civilian oversight, perhaps of the Canadian forces?
7: Her apology is a start. I want to see apologies and and uh, an acceptance of, of of responsibility by Minister Sajin and 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 Justin Trudeau. Uh, you know, we've heard from multiple witnesses and people that are currently serving that they need to feel safe uh, when they are coming forward with with their. Uh, complaints, uh, they've got to feel confident that they aren't going to face reprimands from from their commanding officers and they need to feel like it's going to be taken seriously and properly investigated. And So that's why independent oversight is important. As Conservatives, we've already come out and said that we need to have, at the very least, an independent defence ombudsman's office that mm. the uh, military uh, sexual misconduct response centre has to be moved from outside of the Department of National Defence and uh, there's probably more that can be done uh, when we start looking at the way uh, this, the national investigative service military policing uh and the military justice system has been operating uh, to ensure that the victim's rights are respected and that um, instead of um, reprimanding those that bring forward these complaints of sexual misconduct that we're actually reprimanding the perpetrator of uh, these inappropriate actions. And some of them are quite violent. Some of them are sexual assault. And as we've seen in uh, some um, data that we were able to collect through a, a question on the order paper uh, last week, that someone in the Canadian Armed Forces is sexually assaulted once every three days. And wow. that wow. number is horrific. And, um, you know, we need to change the culture. And we need to put more women into leadership positions uh, to ensure that the sexualized culture within the Canadian Armed Forces, as it was described by uh, Justice uh, Marie Deschamps, when she wrote a okay. report uh, six years ago, uh, we have to stomp out um, that type of attitude so that everyone, as Christopher Freeland said, everyone who puts on the uniform, and any woman that goes to work anywhere in this country right. can feel safe and respected.
1: Okay, we continue to follow this story with keen interest. Thank you very much for your time today. Anytime. I'll okay, appreciate on. it. Thank you.
0: Conservative MP James Bazan there, the vice chair of the defense committee in Ottawa. We're